Good morning. Today we'll be reading uh, from Philippians, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 8. Or sorry, 3, 8 to 4, 7. <laughs> Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are at the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and his, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia and I implore Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated this morning, and let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Father God, again, we ask that you would give us grateful hearts as we come into your presence, and especially as we come now to your holy word. Holy Spirit, be with us. Help us to understand the meaning of these words and mostly convict us of their truthfulness and continue this work that you have begun in us of using your living and active word to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Father, we ask that this time together in your word would be pleasing to you, would be honoring to you. Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I thought it would be appropriate today on the heels of the Thanksgiving holiday on Thursday and and also having been soaking in all of this rich truth that we've been soaking in in the book of Hosea about the faithfulness and the holiness and the goodness and the love of our God, I thought it would be appropriate for us to take the time that we have in God's Word together this morning and focus on this theme in God's Word that pervades God's Word of thankfulness. Thankfulness to the God who is so great and awesome in His character, in His nature, and so has loved us to the uttermost, even as we were talking about last week from Hosea chapter 11. And I want to do that together by focusing in on these words of Paul's at the end of the book of Philippians. These are words that most of us know and love and cherish together so well. Philippians chapter 4, and I want to focus together especially on verses 4 through 7 and think together about the importance in our lives as those who have been loved by the other mo- to, to the uttermost, as those who are the redeemed people of the Most High God, the importance of thanksgiving in our lives, the importance of thankfulness and gratitude towards God in our lives, and the connection between, specifically today, the connection between thanksgiving and prayer, which Paul links together, doesn't he, there in verse 6 of this passage today. We always quote this passage to ourselves and tell ourselves not to be anxious about everything but to be people who make our requests known to God and sometimes we forget to insert the little word thanksgiving there, don't we? Don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And I want to talk about the important connection there between thankfulness and prayer today. The Puritan preacher Thomas Goodwin, 1600s England, wrote a wonderful little treatise on thankfulness, on thanksgiving, on cultivating a heart of gratitude towards God, on ascribing thanks to God for all things, and how absolutely centrally important that heart attitude of thankfulness is for Christians who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It's just called a treatise on thankfulness. And I try to read that little treatise every year just before Thanksgiving. And then when I do, I realize that I really need to read it more often than just once a year because of how easy it is for thankfulness and gratitude towards God to, to, to wane 
in my heart. Goodwin, and he's talking in his little treatise, he's talking about prayer in the Christian life. He says this, and this is very, very convicting. He says how easy it can be for us to pray to our God and to come and worship our God, to ascribe praise to our God, but to do it more as just an outward act of raw obligation or duty than from an inward heart of genuine gratitude towards God. And he says when we do that, when we're just coming and going through the motions, or just doing it out of obligation or or, or duty, praying and worshiping, he compares that to a farm animal that's chained to a stake and that's impelled to do its work by the farmer with a whip. But Goodwin says, look, God is not that kind of master to you who compels you to serve out of fear and with severity towards you. God is a good and kind and loving Father, Goodwin says. And the objective realities, both of God's nature and of how He treats us, what He does for us, what He continues to do for us, that ought to engender great gratitude within us. Hearts of thankfulness for the God who He is and the And the love with which He's loved us to the uttermost and forgiven our sins and given us an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. And that gratitude, that thankfulness then ought to be what compels us to serve Him and to worship Him, to sing praises to Him, to pray to Him. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. How often, even just in our prayer lives, How often are our prayers to God actually driven by a heartfelt gratitude and thankfulness for the God who He is and for the good things that He does versus those kinds of prayers that come out of a kind of a, honestly, a selfish, me-centered kind of anxiety and discontentment which then we think might give way to gratitude if God does a good job answering our prayers according to the way we want Him to. How often, how often, put it this way, how often does thankfulness precede prayer instead of being the product of prayer answered? How often does thankfulness come first instead of thankfulness being dependent on God answering our prayers according to the way that we want Him to? How often really are our prayers actually engendered by thankfulness instead of by anxiety? Too often it's anxiety, right, that leads to prayer? I'm not thankful, I'm not content with the way things are going. I'm anxious about it. I'm frustrated. And so out of all this discontented anxiety, I pray. I want God to fix it. And then if He does fix it according to my approval, maybe I'll thank Him for it. But here, see, in Philippians 4, Paul would have us to see that if we're praying like that, we've got it all backward. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving already in your heart. Driving the prayer, make your requests known to God. According to Paul, thanksgiving is a prerequisite to prayer. Not just a product of answered prayer. 
for Paul, thankful prayer is the antidote to anxiety instead of anxious prayer being the, the gateway to gratitude. That's not how it works. Anxious prayer doesn't generate gratitude. In fact, it only adds to anxiety. But thankful prayer, Paul says here, leads to the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, the opposite of anxiety. And that sounds good, right? Less anxiety, more peace, that sounds like what we need, right? I've got plenty of anxiety. I don't need more anxiety. It's kind of like belly fat. I, maybe something happened this week on Thursday that makes me think of this as an example, but it's kind of like belly fat, right? I don't want more of it. I want to get rid of what I've already got, and too much indulgent eating is counterproductive to that goal. Just like anxious praying. Anxious praying only leads to more anxiety. And so, I want to learn this great spiritual blessing of thankful praying so that God can help me, help me shed the anxiety and bulk up in the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So let's see how Paul and the Scriptures flesh all of this out here in the Word of God today. First of all, Again, note that Paul is linking prayer and thanksgiving in verse 6. He's tying them inexorably together. We should be anxious for nothing but prayerful about everything. In other places in the New Testament, of course, he calls this, this habit of heart praying without ceasing. There is a way to be prayerful when you're not just deliberately folding your hands and engaging in this activity that is prayerfulness. That's important to do, but we must be prayerful in every aspect of our lives. Pray without ceasing. Be prayerful in everything. And he says that all prayer should be thankful prayer, which will lead to this peace of God that surpasses all understanding, because peace-producing prayer is by definition thankful prayer. And so, let's, let's think about thankfulness. Let's, let's, let's define what thankfulness is. Goodwin, meditating on thankfulness all throughout God's Word, de- defines the word thankfulness like this. And I've copied this into your bulletin there on page 7, in case you'd like to refer back to that and, and preserve that somewhere. Thomas Goodwin says that thankfulness is a free rendering unto God the glory of His goodness, principally to the end that we may glorify it and testify our love to Him. Think about those words. A free rendering, free, something that's not compelled just out of fear or raw obligation or rote duty, but something that comes freely out of our hearts and renders to God, ascribes to God the glory of His inherent goodness both in terms of who He is and in terms of the good things that He does. And the goal of doing that, of ascribing this glorious goodness to God, is that we might glorify Him, that we might glorify His goodness and acknowledge and testify of our love to Him who is so gloriously good. That's what thanksgiving is. That's a good, Goodwin's definition is a good one, right? It reflects the meaning of what the Scriptures 
are speaking about when they talk about thankfulness. In fact, the word that the Old Testament uses that is most often translated thankfulness or thanksgiving in our Bibles is the Hebrew word yada. And in its most basic sense, the root of that word yada means an acknowledgement. An acknowledgement of something that is in reality. It's, it's, it's at the most basic level to simply acknowledge the God who is in all of His goodness. So who He is, the One who is sovereign over everything, the One who is good in all that He is and in all that He does. He's holy in all of His ways. He's, like we saw last week, unchangeably loving and kind. He's righteous. He's just. Thankfulness means beholding the glory and the goodness of God as He reveals Himself in Scripture and in creation and as He manifests His glory and goodness in the world and in our lives and then acknowledging that He is who He is and He does what He does. He's glorious and He's good. And ascribing praise to Him because of that. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Yada, Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord because He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. That's what thankfulness is. Acknowledging the goodness of God and giving Him praise because of it. And then Psalm 107 goes on. If you, if you study that psalm, And it delineates all of the ways that the sovereign holy God is good and is loving to all of those who call on Him in their distress. Even when that distress has come because of their sin, if they cry out to the God who is good, then He delivers. Because He is not just righteous, He is also mercy. He is also love. So the ongoing refrain all throughout Psalm 107 is, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love and His wondrous works to the children of man. So it just means to acknowledge. Let them acknowledge the goodness of God. Let them acknowledge the steadfast love and faithfulness of God because He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Psalm 107 verse 9. So just think of it that way. To thank God, to be thankful to God means to focus on what is true about Him and about the things that He does and to acknowledge that it is all true and real and then to give Him praise for who He is and what He does. To freely render to God the glory of His goodness, as Goodwin puts it. And of course, implicit in that definition of thankfulness is this reality on the other side of the coin that when our hearts are not full of thankfulness, which freely pours out in ascribing glory to God and expressing love to God, when when that's not going on in our hearts, it's because our hearts aren't focused on His goodness. They're not confident in His goodness. And of course, the reason why we lose focus and confidence in the goodness of God is because we become too focused on something else, usually ourselves, our own desires, what we want in this world, our demands for how we want things to be going. And when our hearts become more fixated on us than on Him, who is unchangeable in His goodness and glory, That's where discontentment comes from. That's where anxiety comes from. 
because I'm not focused on the God who is. And the cure for it then starts with getting our focus off of ourselves and putting it more and more and more onto Him and the glory of His goodness. It starts with not looking at God through this tinted lens of our own selfish desires and discontentment and anxiety. And then sort of framing up our needs and framing up God's response to our prayers according to those discontented feelings. It comes from looking away from self and into the fullness of God's glory and grace and then framing up our needs and the circumstances and whatever we're going through with the realities of the fact that God is who He is, His sovereign glory, His unchanging goodness. So, for example, turn over to the book of James really quick. We're going to come right back to Philippians. But turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We we touched on this verse last week. James 1, 17. Last week we were talking about God's unchangeableness in relation to His deeply affectionate love for us. How is God both unchangeable and loving was was our study last week. Here's what James says in James 1.17. He tells us that every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's a really, really picturesque way to describe our God, right? He's the Father of lights. What does it mean? He's the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Think about that imagery that James employs. It's it's under the Holy Spirit's inspiration that he says that, remember? He's talking about the fact that God does not change. God isn't like the shifting shadows that we see everywhere in this world, right? Every object in the world casts a shadow when any kind of light falls on it. And those shadows are constantly changing, aren't they? They change shape, they change size, they change location. When the light source changes its position relative to the object, when it moves. And the main sources of light that cause these shifting, changing shadows are the heavenly lights above us. That's what James is referring to, like the the sun especially in the sky. But notice that James doesn't just say that God is more like the sun than He is like the shifting shadows. More like the light source than the shadows that change. No, he says something more than that. He says that God is the Father of those heavenly lights that are responsible for the shifting shadows. So he's focusing on the sovereignty of God, see? Not just over the shifting shadows of this world, but over the sun, over the moon, over the stars that move around in the skies and cause those shadows to shift. And he's saying not only is God the sovereign master of the sun and the moon and the stars that cause the shadows to shift... He's a master who's not just up there orchestrating all of these changes in our world in a cold and calloused and uncaring and indifferent way in terms of how the changes affect us. 
That's not who God is. James says He's not just a master. He's a father of the heavenly lights. He's a father who unchangeably cares and loves with divine affection more deeply than we could ever possibly imagine like we saw last week. He's the one who gives all the good gifts in our lives, right? See what James's point is? It's as simple as this. Don't be more concerned about the shifting shadows. The changes in this world, the changes in your life, the changes in your body, the changes in your relationships. Don't be more concerned about the shifting shadows that cause anxiety in this world than you are concerned about the warm, life-giving sun that, that casts those shadows, let alone the God who is sovereign over the sun. That's what James is saying. Put your focus on the God who cares with unchanging, abiding fatherly affection and goodness towards His children. Let your soul be consumed in your mind with Him. And it's easy to lose focus on Him, isn't it? It's so easy to get caught up focusing on the shadows. The always changing, shifting circumstances that are painful, that are sorrowful, that are fearful, that bring anxiety to our minds and our hearts when we focus on them. And James is simply saying, don't go around with your head down and your focus buried in the shadows. Look up to the brightness of the sun that casts those shadows and look beyond the sun to Him. By faith, to Him, who is a heavenly Father, who is sovereign over the sun, over the shifting shadows, over every circumstance of your lives, and who gives every good and perfect gift, and who causes all things to work together for your good. All things. Look to Him. Even the hard things are ordained by your Father for good purposes. As He faithfully and lovingly conforms you to the image of Jesus Christ and prepares you for an eternal weight of glory which is what this life is all about. So turn back to Philippians then, where again, Paul exhorts us to be anxious for nothing. Nothing. He doesn't just say, don't sweat the small things. He says, be anxious for nothing there in Philippians 4, verse 6. And we can see how the presence of anxiety in our minds and in our hearts is a really, really important indicator of where our minds and hearts are focused. When I'm focused more on me, I have anxiety. When I'm focused more on what I want, on my own demands for what I think ought to be happening in my life, when I'm focused more on those shifting shadows of all of the circumstances of my life, I start to get anxious about the change, about the shadows, about what's coming next, about what it all means. And that's a symptom that lets me know that I need to refocus, not on me, not on the shadows, but on the Father of lights who is the giver of all good gifts and is sovereign over all of the circumstances and all of creation and is working them all together for my good because He is always and unchangeably good. Is He not? And if I can acknowledge that and thank Him for His steadfast love, 
which never changes, and His wondrous works, which are always good, then I'll be in the right frame of mind to come to Him and make my request known to Him in my time of need in thankful prayer instead of in anxious prayer. That's Paul's point. Pray in a way that your prayer is coming out of a a God-focused, settled confidence in His unchangeable goodness instead of your prayer coming out of a frantic, unsettled anxiousness that's more self-focused than God-focused. And it's more focused and fixed on the dark and shifting shadows than on the fatherly sovereignty over the lights that cast those shadows. So we can see, right, why Paul starts this whole section of Scripture in Philippians 4, verse 4. He starts it all with the word rejoice, right? Rejoice in the Lord when? When things are great? When, when the shadows go away and the sun's shining bright and you don't have anything to worry about and you've gotten all your answers to prayer exactly the way you wanted them? And when, Rejoice in the Lord then or always? In case you didn't catch it, Paul says, let me repeat myself. Again, I say, rejoice. The word rejoice there has the same root as the word thanksgiving in verse 6. They're both words that are built on the Greek word charis, which means to be in a state of happiness, to be in a state of contentment, gladness of heart, well-being. Always. (laughs) This this word rejoice is is that feeling of delight that parents have with their little ones or grandparents have with their little grandchildren when they see them and their faces light up. That delight, that's that's this word. Rejoicing, right? It's that feeling that that a sports fan has when their team scores. I was was watching the Argentina-Mexico match in the World Cup yesterday and, and when Lionel Messi scored for Argentina, the fans went nuts, crazy with excitement, right? That yelling, chanting, jumping around, hugging each other, that's, that's this word, that's rejoicing. That's what the New Testament word means, the, the inner experience that, that leads to that outer expression. It's, it's what the mind and the soul and the body do in response to something good and wonderful, rejoicing. And... Then thanksgiving, again, based on that same root word chorus, thanksgiving is eucharisto, means to ascribe thanks to God for the good things that are true about Him and that are true about what He does and that cause our souls to rejoice. And so that's why Paul says, do that, rejoice always. And in our humanness, and especially in our sinfulness, we think, well, I can't rejoice always because there aren't good things happening to me always. So he can't really mean always. He's just speaking hyperbolically, right? No. We go, well, there's evil in our world. There's pain in my life. Evil people are doing evil things to me and it hurts. And when we're focused on them and on us, we're not rejoicing. Which is why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, right? It doesn't mean pretend in some sort of Pollyanna naivete that nothing bad's going on in your world. It's okay to 
to acknowledge that. It's okay to experience that. It's okay to feel bad about that. Then rejoice in the Lord. Lift your focus up beyond that and look upon Him and rejoice in Him. Be more focused on Him than on the things of the earth. Be more focused on the Father of lights than on the shifting shadows. Be more focused on His goodness because it never changes. Be more focused on His sovereign authority because it never diminishes. And it is not limited to the good things in your world. Be more focused on His loving kindness because it never waxes or wanes. It's not dependent on your experiences of pleasantness in your life. So no matter how dark the shadows are, the light of God's glory and grace can cast them out. No matter what pain or sorrow or fear there is that is threatening your soul, it's no match for the sovereign goodness of the Almighty. Didn't we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus last week? Look full in His wonderful face. Focus on Him. Be confident in Him. Acknowledge and rejoice in the glory and the majesty and the mercy of Christ and what? The things of this earth will... They won't go away. They won't disappear. But they won't matter as much. They will grow strangely dim in the light of His great infinite glory and grace. No matter how deep the shadows are, no matter how great the sorrows, no matter how painful and fearful the trials, how overwhelming the afflictions or the pressures, the glory and the goodness of the living Almighty Father of lights can pierce that darkness. No matter how guilty you feel about what you did once or twice or a lot of times, no matter what shame you're burdened with, the greatness of God's Mercy and steadfast love can lift any burden and outweigh any burden if He is our focus, if we call His glory and goodness to our minds. It's like what Jeremiah did, isn't it? On that most absolutely horrific day in Jerusalem in Lamentations chapter 3, right? Now, I've been through hard things in my life, and so have you. You've been through a lot harder things in your life than I've been through in mine. Jeremiah might top us all. The golden city of Jerusalem was literally burning, all of it, under the Babylonian torches. The walls had been breached. The buildings and the temple were now piles of rubble. The men of the city were being slain before Jeremiah's eyes. The women and the children, as he looked on in horror and listened to their screams, were being subjected to unspeakable atrocities. And there Jeremiah was on his face, grinding his teeth in the gravel of the streets of Jerusalem, lamenting, weeping, overwhelmed by the crushing weight of all of the troubles and sorrows around him. Look how the shadows have shifted. Look how much change has suddenly come to everything that I staked my hope in in this world. Right? They were deep shadows that day. Everything that he'd known was torn to pieces. All of the great stability of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem had been literally shaken into dust. All of the peace of the kingdom of Judah had been shattered. All hope seemed to be utterly 
lost. But only if hope depended on the things that can be shaken and the things that always change. But Jeremiah knew better than to, than to anchor his hope to the shadows of this world. The weeping prophet knew, never stake your hope to that which is changeable. The weeping prophet knew that when all around your soul gives way, he then is all your hope and stay. And that there is no shadow of turning with God. And so, when all around Jeremiah's soul did give way, when the deepest shadows were swallowing up, when all hope seemed lost from the perspective that he could see by focusing on the shadows around him, that's when he changed his perspective. That's when he looked up beyond the shadows, beyond the sun, to the unchanging Father of lights. And he called to mind the truth that he knew about his unchanging God. He focused, he acknowledged, he praised God for who he is. This I call to mind. I'm going to shut my eyes to everything around me and I'm just going to think on him. And you know the rest, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, never ceases, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. In fact, they are new every morning, even this morning when everything is so painful. Great is your faithfulness. Greater even, outweighing by far all the griefs that were threatening to crush Jeremiah's soul. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in Him. I won't hope in the shifting, changing shadows of this world. I won't put my hope in the unsteady, fleeting desires of my own heart. I will put my hope in Him who changes not and whose compassions fail not. See why it's so important to understand the unchanging nature of God if we're ever going to understand the deeply affectionate love of God and how they go together? Jeremiah focused on God, the unchanging glory, the unchanging goodness. And so he's able to rejoice even with the, literally the smoke of, of disaster filling his nostrils and the horrors of destruction filling his eyes and the screams of the slaughtered filling his ears. I am able to rejoice in the God who never changes. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again I say, rejoice. By looking past the shadows to the Father of lights, by being focused on and acknowledging the realities of Him and His unchangeable goodness and mercy and love. And in that mindset now, focused above and not around, acknowledging, praising, rejoicing in the objective, unchanging greatness and goodness and faithfulness of God who is sovereign over everything and, and who is using even the hard things to train us to hope in Him and not put our hope in the fleeting things of this world. In that mindset of, of, of contentment in God's sovereign purposes, of resting in Him as our portion, that's how we draw near to Him in prayer. When all around our soul gives way, Paul says. Not in panicked, discontented, anxious, fretting prayers. God, oh, everything's terrible, fix it, fix it. But with thanksgiving. You're a good God. 
You're sovereign over these circumstances. You've decreed the end from the beginning. You're working it all together for my good. It's so hard for me that I can't handle it, but you can because you're so good, always so caught. I come to you for whatever I need. That's it. Thank you for the God who you are and the good that you always do. Please, God, hear my prayer. That's it. Thanksgiving, making our requests known to Him. Eucharisto, an inner disposition of settled, contented gladness that in the midst of everything that's painful and hard and terrifying and even maddening out there in the world, God is our God. He is our rock, unmovable. He is our fortress, indomitable. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble, Psalm 46 rejoices, right? Therefore, because it's God who is our rock, because it's God who is our refuge, because it's God who is present, we will not fear. Even though the earth gives way, even if the mountains are thrown into the heart of the sea, we will not fear if God is our God and if God is with us. So, even if and when everything falls apart and the wheels come off of the whole wagon of our lives in this world, all the things that we tend to anchor our hope to, even if the whole earth itself gives way, we will not fear so long as our souls are confident that God is good and He is our refuge and He is with us. Get your mind and soul into that place of confidence and rejoicing in Him by calling the truth of Him to mind, turning your eyes upon Jesus, looking full in the wonderful face of His redeeming love, letting the blazing glory of His goodness cast away all the shadows of fear and anxiety. And in that frame of mind, pray to Him. Who is your portion? Who is your Father? Who loves you? Who is your rock? Who is your refuge? Who is with you? in every fiery trial and in all the deep waters. That's how you pray to Him. Prayer there in verse 6 is the general category. Notice he says two things, right? With prayers and supplications. Prayer is the general, the broad word for this spiritual sense of devotion and dependence and trust in God which causes us like little children to cry out to Him, Abba, Father, to the Father of lights. In all kinds of different ways. We can, we can pray to Him thankfully. We can pray to Him in times of need. We can pray to Him in our distress. There's all kinds of different ways in different situations of our lives to pray. Here, Paul focuses specifically on supplication. That's a much more specific word. It just means a call for help. A request made in a time of need. God, help. But again, not out of this unsettled anxiety. Instead, with thanksgiving, with a heart of settled confidence that He can help and that He will help because He's good and He loves you. That's where prayer and supplication come from. They come from that place of thankful, prayerful dependence on God. Thankful prayer rather than anxious prayer. Because prayer comes out of confidence in God's unchanging goodness and mercy, which leads to a rest and contentment with whatever answer God gives. God, heal. You can pray that. 
Knowing that if he does, it's because he cares. Knowing that if he doesn't, it's not because he doesn't care. It's because in his goodness, he's got another purpose that's even better. He's always good. He's unchanging. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't always plumb the depths of His sovereign will in every circumstance in our lives. And so we pray to the One who is able and who cares in our times of need, leaving it there with Him. You you do what you will with it. And I will trust you and praise you and thank you no matter what it is because you're good no matter what. So when we've been praying thankfully instead of anxiously, that's why we can remain confident that whatever our God ordains is right. I'm not just praying anxiously, well, God, like I'm, I've tried everything in my strength and I'm at my last resort here, so I guess I'll try praying to you. Maybe you can fix it. And then he does it and you go, oh man, he didn't do what I wanted and so I better freak out some more. No, whatever my God ordains is right. I can rest in the assurance that His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, that the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower, that the clouds we so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on our head. Thankful prayer helps us shed unwanted anxiety and grow strong in increasing and abiding peace. So pray thankfully, Paul says, and then he promises, verse 7, pray thankfully and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now peace is a beautiful word. It means... So often our English words are so clunky and so technical. These biblical words are so rich with imagery and and feeling. This word peace, irene, means tranquility. Like a calm sea after a storm. It means harmony. Like when every single instrument and every single note is in tune and played together perfectly. It's very much the opposite of anxiety and fear. This is a word that came into use originally in the context of war. Countries are raging at each other. There's fighting going on. People are dying. Economies are failing. Smoke's on the horizon all the time. You don't want to go outside because it's, there's tension out there. And with the ceasing of hostilities, right, when the fighting become, between warring nations stops... That resultant, restful feeling of of tranquility. That's peace. That's irene. No conflict, no violence, no smoke on the battlefield, blocking out the sun. Just the kind of clarity and quiet and tranquil harmony that people who have lived through times of war are desperate for, are longing for. That's the kind of inner spiritual tranquility that every human heart was designed to enjoy, right? Don't we all long for that? I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be anxious. I just want to be at peace. Well, God tells us how. Well, 
the peace gets threatened. It gets shaken by the war that rages all around us in this world. There's things going on that, that make me not feel at peace. The, the spiritual warfare that God describes in places like Ephesians 6, right? The spiritual forces of evil are raging against us in this world. How can we be at peace? And the rest of Scripture goes on in places like the book of Revelation and Daniel to describe how the spiritual warfare is what's giving rise to all of the other kinds of turmoil in this world that are making me feel anxious. How am I supposed to be at peace? Our souls shudder within us. We tremble with fear and anxiety because of the the smoke that's constantly rising because of the warfare all around us in various ways in this world. The promise is that thankful prayer will drive us up beyond that smoke and will stay our hearts with this peace. Not just any peace. Not just a piece you can find by, by, by listening to music with your headphones on or by chanting or meditating or doing drinking something or smoking. Not that kind of peace. Trying to drown out all the... Not that kind of peace. The peace of God. This is a singularly unique kind of peace that Paul is describing, which comes from a, a singular place. It's the peace that God alone gives, which nothing else in this world can reproduce, or compare with, or challenge, or, or take away, or interfere with. The kind of peace that enabled Jeremiah to say what he said there in Lamentations chapter 3, on that most wretchedly horrible day that he was in the middle of. I can be at peace because my God is God and he is with me. Because he's always faithful, because his steadfast love never changes, his mercies never end, he is who he is and he's always here. So I can be at peace. Right? The kind of peace that allowed Daniel to fall asleep in the lion's den. (laughs) The kind of peace that allowed Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to say, right, when they were about to throw him into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to the big golden image, they said, I'm not going to focus on the fire. I'm not going to think about what that might feel like. I'm going to focus on my God. And you know what they said? They said to the people about to throw them in, our God is able to deliver us from the furnace. But even if He doesn't, We're not worshiping your gods. We're not bowing down to your stupid idol. Because our God is worth dying for. Right? That's the kind of peace we're talking about here. The kind of peace that in spite of the agony of what faced Him, moved Jesus to say to His heavenly Father of lights, Not my will, but yours be done. In the garden, weeping, sweating as drops of blood, My soul is greatly troubled, yet I am at peace because my God's will is good. And so for the what set before Him, He endured the cross? The joy in the midst of the pain. The same kind of peace by which the Apostle Paul wrote this book. Sitting in chains, imprisoned in Rome. Not knowing how many more days of his life he would live. But rejoicing 
Writing the book that's all about joy, the book of Philippians, assuring Christians who are out there hearing that Paul's been arrested and dragged to Rome and they're anxious, what's going to happen to Paul? And Paul says, hey, don't worry, be at peace because you know what? God's actually using all of this for the furthering of the gospel here. The whole Praetorian Guard has heard about the gospel now because they're chained to me. (laughs) They can't go anywhere, so I'm just going to keep preaching to them. And then they're telling each other and pretty soon, isn't that great? Peace. Paul's at peace. And he's exhorting them also to rejoice always in the goodness of their God, no matter what, to pray thankfully, not anxiously, and to receive from God this peace that He gives that surpasses all understanding. The world can't reproduce this peace. The world can't has nothing to compare this peace to. The world can't account for this peace. The world can't comprehend this peace. Because the world's focus is is fixed on the world, where there's no source of this peace. The world's focus is fixed on all the shifting shadows instead of on the Father of lights. But Paul promises the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind during the times of change and fear and pain and pressure. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guard them from what? From being overwhelmed by the anxiety. From being paralyzed by the fear. From being buried down in the deepest pits of guilt and shame. Perfect love casts out fear, John says, 1 John 4.18. The peace of God that comes from God-focused, exultant, rejoicing prayer will guard your hearts and minds from the tempting thoughts and desires that Satan would entice you with when you're weak because your soul is discontent and frustrated and bitter and, and angry and fearful. And full of anxiety. And that's right when Satan goes, well, well, here, this will (laughs) help. Thanks, but no thanks, right? Because my God reigns and gives me the peace that surpasses all understanding and guards my heart and mind from the temptations and from the guilt that comes when I succumb to the temptations. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And then with your mind there, pray to Him, thankful for who He is, and receive this peace. Rejoice always in the awesome God who loves us. Pray to Him. Make your requests known to Him. And He will continue more and more to fill you with the peace that He gives and train your heart to keep going back. Keep going back because you're going to get anxious tomorrow. You're going to pray this way and then you're going to feel at peace and then you're going to get in the car and somebody's going to cut you off. And ah, you're going to... That's what happens. Or something's going to happen tomorrow or you're going to watch the news again and it's going to freak you out or somebody's going to say something to you or do something to you or you're going to be tempted and fail. I promise you will. And all of that is this reminder. Now get up out of yourself and get up out of this world and look to the Father of lights and pray to Him with thankfulness in your heart that His grace is always sufficient, that His love is always sure and that He is always with you. Put your mind on the things that are above. 
And in spite of all that's going on in your life, you can say with Paul, you can have this peace that helps you say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, even though it all is hard, we don't lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day with this soul-staying peace. For this momentary light affliction... (laughs) is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the unseen things. Because the things that are seen are transient, shadows that shift. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God's fatherly love and care and goodness towards you in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's be done. Let's pray together for our great, unchanging, awesome God who is our Father of lights to give us this faith to fill us with thankfulness and to give us this peace. Our God and our Father, this is what we long for. This is what we need. This is what we desire. Would you help us remember to fix our eyes on the unseen things by faith, which is the assurance of things that are unseen, which is the gift that your Holy Spirit gives us to trust and be confident in who You are and all that You do. Father, help us as Jeremiah to call to mind Your goodness, Your faithfulness, Your steadfast love, Your mercy, Your nearness to us, that we might count You as our portion and therefore have hope no matter what's going on in our world. Father, give us this thankfulness with which we might pray to You and receive from You the peace that surpasses all understanding. This is our prayer. This is our need. And we know that You answer and love to supply. Through faith in Your Son we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.